Today, we're talking with Richard Rossi about pivoting post-2020 and making online events unforgettable. You definitely don't want to miss this one, so don't you change that dial or drop that phone. We're about to level it up and shatter the mold. Question. In a world where groupthink is the norm, others want what you've earned, and thinking for yourself will get a target painted on your back, how do you flip the script and level up your business, your money, relationships, your health, your status, and your life? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Andrew S. Kaplan, and it's time to shatter the mold. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Shatter the Mold. Andrew S. Kaplan, really excited to be here with you today. We've got an unbelievable interview. You know, this was recorded back in 2020, and um, things have been so busy. Production schedule has been a little bit slowed down. I haven't gotten around to publishing it until now. But I think the timing of it is perfect given the topic of what we're going to be talking about here. Again, this is about pivoting post-2020. But on top of that, because we've got an expert here, we're going to be talking about making online events unforgettable. No matter where you fall in terms of your entrepreneurial journey, you definitely want to listen to what this interview has got in store for you. But before we get there, quick update as always on the last Law of Attraction book you'll ever need to read. Those who've been listening to the show are no stranger to the fact that it's been featured in USA Today in an article titled 20 Reading Suggestions for a New and Improved You in 2021, and in Forbes in an article titled 21 Books to Read in 2021. The feedback I've gotten, I, I just can't begin to tell you how grateful I am. It's amazing. The five-star Amazon reviews to say nothing of the emails that people send in when they use the content from the book. Thank you so much, everyone who's read the last Law of Attraction book you'll ever need to read. I appreciate it more than words can say. And if you've not checked it out yet, you can go ahead and go to lastlawofattractionbook.com. That'll forward you to the Amazon listing where you can get it in paperback or Kindle or audiobook if you prefer, or if you don't want to pull out your wallet but you want to see what this thing is all about, you can go to my YouTube channel dedicated to it at youtube.com slash Cap. So really great things going on there. Over 50,000 copies sold in the past year. But with that said, let's get straight to today's guest. I'm about to switch mics and move on to my conversation with Richard. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is going to be a really good one. All right. So today's guest... Uh... I feel like every single time I, I do a show here, I say how excited I am, but I, I, it's, it's true in this regard as well. And, you know, after working in the U.S. Senate for nine years, starting at just 19 years of age, Richard Rossi co-founded Envision EMI, eventually helping to turn it into the largest provider of enrichment programs for high-achieving students from fifth grade all the way through college. He sold the company in 2011 and then founded the Da Vinci Alliance, which holds congresses for tens of thousands of high achievement students throughout the year. Now, 2020 presented a new challenge for him, just like everyone else, when he was forced to find a way around the global shutdown and basically took his business to an even higher level by reaching even more students through online events instead. Uh, I'm sure that intro is only just beginning to scratch the surface of the direction we might go in here, but um, I guess we'll see where it goes. So without any further ado, Shatter the Mold warmly welcomes Mr. Richard Rossi. Richard, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Shatter the Mold. I'm excited, man. I'm really excited, and uh, I, I look forward to our discussion. Yeah, and, you know, I guess full disclosure for the audience, I, I found out a lot about you, you know, even after my first impression, and the thing that, like, the thing that caught my eye is really just, you know, here we are in 2020, and here you are with a highly, highly successful, and also just highly prolific company that's serving people on an in-person event scale. And you were basically forced to pivot. And as I understand it, 
you did so in a way that, you know, business got even better. And in a sense, you reached more people, which, you know, just judging by the type of business that you have is really, I mean, this is a passion thing for you. This isn't just about money. So obviously, like, what, what a victory to be able to take this obstacle and serve more people in spite of it. And, you know, I guess, like, you know, kind of diving in, because we'll probably end up working backwards into your history and things. But, you know, at what point in the process of the, you know, the quote unquote global lockdown, did you just say to yourself, listen, this is happening one way or another, I'm going to pivot and we're just going to try something new and see where it goes. May 1, May mm-hmm. 1 was the day. I remember it so clearly. We had done a walkthrough of our facility about a month and a half earlier. And the person who ran the facility said, listen, be honest with me, tell me, what are the chances you're going to cancel? And I said, in all honesty, we're not canceling. We're good. And within 45 days, I realized it was absolutely impossible to do an in-person event for 10,000 people uh, at the end of June. Not happening. Uh, Probably illegal. Hmm. Uh, Certainly, no one was going to show up. And at that point, we had a choice, like so many businesses, which was pivot or die. And... um, Henry Kissinger, who used to be Secretary of State, had this wonderful saying, which is that uh, lack of options clears the mind marvelously. And that is so true, because we just had to sit there and come up with a solution. There was no choice. And the solution was uh, to rebuild our event ground up for a a digital uh, delivery which in and of itself was a death-defying and exciting uh, journey. I could only imagine. And, you know, it's on, on the one hand, you know, you got to give respect to anybody that will just pivot and be like, okay, I'm going to just do a Zoom call. But, you know, you didn't just do that. I mean, you, you basically went into high production value in this. This was a real, this wasn't just a thing where you sent the invite to people that were going to show up and just set up a little laptop and sat in front, kind of like what I'm doing with you right now. You, you went full tilt, you know, you had screens, you had a high production value, mics, like you basically in many ways, and I'm not sure how much of this you were doing beforehand, but you, you basically upped the standard of a high-end production company while you were pulling this off, which kind of makes sense because you've got to be on brand for high achievement students and for the kind of work that they're putting in and the, the kind of level that they're taking themselves to. They can't really see you with a rinking ding background and really even get that same visceral experience and have the passion that they will need to consume whatever content and inspiration and information that you're trying to give them. That's very true. And straight off May 2, May 3, I put a a set of principles together, rules, that were going to guide this transformation. And um, the first was that this was going to be a live event. We were going to do this entire thing. And by the way, it's three days, 10 in the morning to 10 at night, live. Um, because I just had this gut feeling that that's a powerful word, as powerful as free is in the marketing world. People like things that are edgy and unpredictable on TV or on any sort of medium where you're watching a screen. Second, I've always had a philosophy 
ever since I began working with high achieving young people, which is you cannot bore people into learning. You cannot bore people into learning. You are in the entertainment business if you're a teacher. Otherwise, the message is never going to get across. So we realized that we had to move fast, especially in this medium. You could not go on for an hour with one thing. It had to go on for a little while and then change and then change and then change, which led us to our third principle, was, which was perhaps the most important of all, which was pattern interrupts. Don't be predictable. When the audience thinks B is going to happen, be sure it's actually C or D. And keep them on the edge of their seat. Don't let them get uh, into a predictable rhythm. So we had 30 speakers uh, over that three-day period coming in from all over the world. And I told every one of them, we're not recording you. You have to be there live. You have to take questions from the audience live. You and I have to interact live. And they all bought into it. And we actually sent them special devices that they were going to use to be on camera. I didn't want to take the slightest chance on production quality. And, um, and then I would say the last thing we did, and by the way, everything I'm mentioning applies to an adult audience, maybe even more so, mm -hmm. uh, was gamification. Mm -hmm. What could we do? that was going to keep people interested. So one of the things, for example, was that we had this little bunny rabbit and at different times during the day, the bunny rabbit would go across the screen. Maybe it would be in the middle of a speaker. Maybe it'd be in the middle of me talking. You never knew. And if you counted up all the bunny rabbits, you were put in for a really big prize. It was fun. And we had half a dozen other things like that. So. I guess my point is we made a few bets right at the beginning and we turned out to be right because a lot of that is now become standard operating procedure with events that I hear about now on the adult side. Mm, I love it. Um, now, obviously, you know, you have all these other people, these speakers in the mix. It's not like you can do a test run or a dress rehearsal. So I'm, I'm assuming you did what you could to test the tech beforehand. But really, when you had to flip that switch, it was a do or die, and you didn't know if something was going to go wrong. Well, we did have a production company, and okay. that was key, right? <clears throat> so I, I thought it was essential that we have experts. Uh, these are people who paid $1,000 each. There were 2,600 of them. And we had to deliver for sure. So we hired a production company down in North Carolina. We sent all of the speakers these devices. I don't know if you can actually see what I'm pointing at right now, mm -hmm. but this is called a portal. It mm -hmm. has a big screen. It has a it has a uh, it, it has a camera here. It has speaker and mic down here. It's a very sophisticated yet incredibly inexpensive device made by Facebook. And we simply bought 30 of them and mailed them to people. So we knew there was no one was going to have their computer refuse to reboot or couldn't load Zoom or, the, you know, the, the terrible thing where the laptop's down here and you kind of see their chin is the <laughs> and, uh, in, in, in audio quality was not predictable. None of that was acceptable to me. 
this was a big secret and I haven't seen anybody else do it, but it's a great device that was going to give us consistent quality, even in fairly low bandwidth. So yeah, to your point, production quality was critical to me. And I knew it would be to the young people because these, they're, they're digital natives and they are completely intolerant of anything that doesn't have high production value. That was wonderful. You even, you even answered my next question was going to be like, did you hire out? And like, of course you did. Like you, this is your first time doing it. You want to make sure you did it right. Again, it's like, it's, it's a high ticket. So you went that step of not taking chances and hiring, which I always say is a great message. Like me, I'm, I'm, I'm very one man show whenever I can be, but that's also because I've structured my business to allow myself to be. And I'd like to think that if I was in your business, I would be insightful and wise enough to go and hire out for that expertise whenever I needed it. So, so kudos to you. And thank you for, for saying that for my audience, because I think it's really important for them to hear. Um, now, obviously, you know, you're coming about this at this from a very intelligent and I'll say wise. I think wisdom sometimes gets overshadowed by intelligence, but this is about wisdom here. Came from this from a very wise perspective, understanding that you really need to execute in a certain way. But also by that same token, there's a lot of intelligence here. And, you know, when I did my, got my research on you, it was very interesting to hear that at 19 years old, you started working, you know, with the U.S. Senate. And we all have these fixed opinions over what, well, I mean, I'll really be happy to ask you like what you did specifically. Um, In fact, let me jump with that. Like, first of all, like, what did you do specifically at that job? So um, I was the person who, well, I started out as just a lowly intern. Uh, At at 19, when you go up to work in the Senate, you are the lowest of the low. And um, so it was all about opening mail and getting coffee and running errands. But over time, I worked my way up to the point where I was running the senator's office. So that's a post called administrative assistant, which is a different um, meaning on the Hill than it does um, in an office in in the Senate, an administrative assistant is the chief aide to the senator mm-hmm. and runs the entire office along with the satellite offices in the state. And I was doing that by the time I was 23 or 24. Um, but honestly, I've never had a real job. I went from that into starting businesses, and I couldn't, um, I couldn't say that working in the Senate was a real job. It's a fantasy world, uh, completely different than any other experience you could imagine. Uh, but that's what I was doing. Yeah, and, and you know, the reason I brought that up is because, again, I'm, I'm coming at this as I'm an outsider. I don't really know what it means to do that. So, and we all have our views of you know, politics and how that thing plays out. But I'm operating under the assumption that especially, you know, from 19 to 23, then 29, 30, like you, you learned about people because the, the high level of pressure in terms of, you know, senators and, and how they've got to come across. I imagine, and I'm taking a, a, a leap here, so please correct me if I'm wrong. I imagine part of the insight of understanding that you're in entertainment when you're educating students and just understanding from their perspective, how they need to receive information. I imagine some of those training wheels came about when you were in that environment. Well, it's really insightful that you say that. Uh, I hadn't given it a lot of thought, but now that you mention it, it's very true. Uh, The Hill in the Senate, it's all about relationships completely. Now, you may not know that today because everything is so adversarial, but back in the 70s and 80s, 
it was all about um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We'll work together, compromise. We're all friends after five o'clock. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to, <clears throat> if you want to get reelected, you better have good relationships with key individuals within the state. You better be liked by an awful lot of your constituents, and so on and so forth. So that's true. And I would just say, like, um, to people outside Washington, government and the and the Hill is a mystery in the same way that I think of Hollywood as a mystery. Mm. And to me, who worked in there for many years, it's um, it's actually a lot better than the media portrays it. It's a whole bunch of men and women who were elected, and the vast majority of whom are honest people. They're not all super smart people, but <laughs> 99% of them are honest and hardworking and doing their best, as are their staffs. Um, and it's a tough job. On the other hand, what's so cool and intoxicating about it is you feel that you're plugged in to what's going on every minute of every day. So a lot of times in my, right now, I'm wherever, but I'm reading about things in the paper and I'm talking to other people about the, the news of the day. Up there, you are the news of the day. And if you work at the White House, you are really the news of the day, no matter who the president is. And you just feel this sense that you're plugged into the world and in real time. And I don't know quite how to describe it, but it very much help, helps you feel alive. Mm-hmm. Like things aren't passing you by. What you're doing, you're then watching on the news. It's a wild experience. Yeah. And then, of course, you're, you're founding companies after that. And I, again, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, but I'm sure going through that kind of stuff and the, the high pressure, high stakes, no matter where you are on the totem pole, really hopefully serves you well when you're trying to get something off the ground or you're served a pretty harsh defeat in business or there's some kind of obstacle, whether it's financial or otherwise, that you can kind of take that, you know, dealing with the pressure mentality and and dive in a little bit more fervently than maybe another type of rookie entrepreneur who's never had to face that before. I guess so. Uh, When I started my very first business, which was in, um, serving political campaigns, mm-hmm. creating computer systems. Uh, I was in my late 20s, and I'll be honest with you, I was judgment-proof. I didn't own anything. I had no assets. I had no family. If things didn't work out, you know, take everything I got, which was nothing. <laughs> and it was just an idea. I didn't even know the word entrepreneur. we I just had some friends and we were like, what the heck, let's give it a shot. Uh, So it was not as big a deal as when someone who has a nine to five job and a family and a house says, I'm going to make the leap and become my own person. That is a death defying feat and one that I just have a world of respect for people who do that because success is far from assured, Mm. but the rewards um, are also, can be, as you know, uh, extraordinary if you 
are one of the lucky ones to succeed. But when you're just a kid, uh, it's just a fun. And for me, it was a really fun experience. It completely failed. Uh, Mm -hmm. But over two years, I learned I got an MBA the hard way. And it served me very well as I created other businesses over the years. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I remember the first two years of my very first business, I, I read more books than high school and college combined. And I wasn't like a bad student or anything. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I was a B plus A minus, depending on my interest. But I, I totally get what you mean on that. And, you know, here we are fast forward. You're, you know, right now you're at the helm of the uh, Da Vinci Alliance. And I'm curious, what inspired you to go down that direction? Because, you know, dealing with, you know, with helping kids, in their formative years in any way, shape, or form is, isn't in itself a really valid endeavor, but you're also going down this path of the challenge of, of high achievement students, meaning not only is there an extra pressure to help cultivate what's already there, but it's, it's kind of like you're, you're more challenged in that you've really got to bring it in a, in a way that a less discerning eye needs to, needs to hear or consume it or see it. I'm curious, like what made you go down that path of I'm going to help high achievement students go even higher level where they're at well as with many things in life it was um where opportunity and chance collided and good luck um and i I had a, a a constituent when i worked in the senate who was a teacher in connecticut that was my home state And she was 25 years older than me, but very entrepreneurial. And after I left the Senate, she left the school system, moved to D.C., and we became friends. And one day we were just sitting around having a drink and we got to talking about a upcoming inauguration, which I think was the second inauguration of President Reagan and how it really was unfortunate that kids didn't get a chance to see the peaceful transfer of power in a democracy, which is one of the most beautiful things that really distinguishes us and a lot of other democracies. We don't execute the loser. We don't exile the loser. Everyone stands on the stage, metaphorically shakes hands, and there is this complete exchange of power. It's really a remarkable thing. And then we got to thinking, well, maybe we could do a program, just one, not a company, just one program for this one event. And again, it was one of those what the heck moments. I threw in $2,500, which is basically all I had. She put in $2,500. I'd learned a little something about direct mail working on Capitol Hill in the campaign world. There was a package that we used up there that had worked pretty well. I adapted it, which is a nice way of saying I basically, you know, kind of stole the whole look and feel of it and created something that could go to to principals inviting kids. Long story short, compress everything, it worked. And then after that, we had the, well, do you think we could do this on a regular basis conversation? And that's what germinated the company that then grew into um, Envision EMI. Interestingly, there were really, the way my life is is divided into the early days before I really read those books and knew about goal setting, confidence building, and all the other tools of success and after. 
And the first seven or eight years of Envision, I didn't know about any of that. We just grew very, very slowly and incrementally. The way I describe it is like driving a car at night in the fog. You can only see about that far, but you can take the whole trip that way. And that was us. We, we kept saying every year, well, what do you think we can do? Well, we can do a little more, we can do a little more. But we never had a plan. We never had goals. We never had a big vision for our future. And then we met a guy who many people on this call may know, Dan Sullivan. And we went into his course called Strategic Coach. And we were introduced to these magical concepts. Soon after that, the business really started to grow to the point where when we sold it, there were over 50,000 young people a year from all over the world who were participating in our live events. Kids who were in the fifth grade all the way through college, it had become what I described as a big little business. Mm. Um, And it was, it was, there were, A lot of moments, not a lot. There were a handful of moments where we definitely could have gone out of business for sure. We were that close. So there was an element of good luck. Uh, Certainly after 9-11, we were very close to the end. Uh, I don't know why, but asking people to put their children on a plane to Washington, D.C., after a plane had crashed into the Pentagon just didn't seem too appealing to parents. Mm. So sales dropped to nothing, we, but we survived. And we survived several other death-defying experiences, which is really one of my life philosophies, uh, which is that so many people fail because they simply give up too soon. Mm-hmm. They simply sit down on the side of the road and give up. Mm. Very insightful. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious because I knew obviously about your, your pivot this year in the face of what was going on. I didn't know that you had that challenge of, you know, immediately following 9-11, trying to get people on, on planes. I'm, I'm curious, was it a thing where you had to pivot in a different way or was it more just to trying to ride it out and, and be as efficient with your business as possible until people warmed to it again? Um, it, it was a lot more of um, the second it was it was surviving. We had a really great bank that we had a good line of credit with that we could draw on for cash flow. Remember, though, it wasn't just the planes. Remember, there was also that I don't remember the name. Was it Nicen, Niken? There was a a poison that was being mm-hmm. sent out in the mail. Well, how do we invite people mm-hmm. in the mail? Wow. So we're sending out these invitations and people are dropping them in the trash without opening them because they don't know who they're from and they're afraid that they have poison in them. <laughs> so <laughs> we had to start doing things like we sent the invitation. We, we switched to a completely uh, clear envelope so that the person could see all the contents inside before opening the envelope. Things like that. This is what entrepreneurship is all about. It's it's constantly just solving problems that were impossible to anticipate the day before. Um, Luckily, it wasn't that long before things got back to normal again. 
Yeah. But, you know, the thing about the clear envelopes, it's, it's such a perfect example to me of, you know, when you want to be an entrepreneur and, you know, to say nothing of thriving when you want to survive, it's like this interesting combination of innovation and common sense. You know, it's like, you know, here's what they need. That's my common sense. Now, how can I innovate to make sure that I follow through on that need and I meet it? And, you know, that's a really wonderful example. I'm, I'm curious because I know you were mentioning you were talking about like, you know, self-confidence. Is that the core? Because, I mean, you know, to, obviously I am not a high achieving student right now. So I don't know the, the core of the company. Like, is, are these is the curriculum that you offer or the events that you offer, is it about building confidence? Is it about, you know, problem solving skills? Is it a combination? Like what exactly do you provide for again, high level, high achieving students who are already probably in advanced classes and are used to a certain standard of education? Right. Have you heard the saying, sell them what they want and give them what they need? Mm -hmm. Yes. And what we sell them is a very high level educational experience to help prepare them for really achieving all they can in the medical profession. It's like a TED conference meets a Tony Robin event, meets a, a rock concert. It's this love in for medicine and the sciences. But what we really do deliver is a whole methodology for playing the biggest possible game in life, which is another one of my philosophies that most people, myself included, I guess, never play the biggest possible game that they could in life. Mm -hmm. And almost always that's because of ignorance, not ignorance is a really harsh word, simply not having any idea of what playing the biggest possible game could mean. And then number two, um, straight up fear, fear of failure, fear of embarrassment, um, fear of, feeling bad, which is probably the biggest one of all. I have this great friend, Joan Rosenberg, the psychologist, who said, it's interesting, but when you're afraid of something, unless it's like a lion or a bad person, it's not really the the thing that's going to happen to you that you're afraid of. It's how it's going to make you feel. So if you can actually learn to deal with that feeling, then dealing with the negative outcome is easy. Uh, And when she told me that, it just kind of blew my mind because the more I thought about it, the more I realized, oh my God, you're right. I mean, if I fail in this this, uh, undertaking, on the one hand, who's going to care except me and a few people who may laugh behind my back and say, how could he have been so stupid to ever think this would work? Mm-hmm. It really is how it would make me feel, how embarrassed I'd be. Um, and she said, look, it's not that you ever stop having those feelings. You move to the other side of them. And there's ways to move to the other side so that you can go forward even if you are afraid. And that's one of the things we teach the kids is that the thing that's going to hold you back is fear. Mm-hmm. And fear is going to affect your self-confidence, how big your goals are. It's going to affect everything. And so there's a lot of talk during the event about how to set really big goals, how to envision the biggest possible future for yourself, and then 
how to overcome the biggest obstacle to actually getting there, which is fear. And that's what I feel they need and they don't get so often in school and at home. And it's hard to put into words how much they embrace that. And when the light bulb starts going off after a couple of hours during the event, they are just in rapt attention because it makes perfect sense to them and they want this. They want that big future. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an exciting, if you, if you came to sat in the room, you, it's electric, it's electricity. You can feel it. I'll bet it, it, you know, it's so, it's so interesting and so fun to hear you describe it in this way because all these light bulbs are going off in my brain about like, you know, why this works so well. And you know, it's almost like this is baked in and you almost, you know, I'm not sure how intentional you were or if you backed into it, but it's like here we have a situation where you have kids that are on a, a fast track to success, but that comes with a lot of things. That comes with a lot of baggage. Maybe they're in the fast track to success in the sense that no one in their family ever did well and they've got to be the one that to make it through. Or a lot of people, including their older brother and sister, did really well. And now there's this pressure to kind of live up to that. But either way, there's this inherent level of extra weight on their shoulders that you have discovered a way to help them cope with in a way that's embracing their their level of intensity already with which they're going through, but also showing them a new way to approach life so that the intensity isn't towards fear, but more towards their goals, which I think is amazing. That's, that's, that's unreal. Um, well, one of the things I haven't mentioned is that in the event down here are the young people, but up here in the rafters are their parents who are silent observers. Hmm. And we, we never even acknowledge the parent until the last night. Um, but they get to watch and they don't get to participate. And as you can imagine, I hear from an awful lot of young people during and after the event about the impact it's had on them. However, what I didn't expect was how many parents I would hear from. Parents who were doctors and said, oh my gosh, I was so disillusioned and now I feel like I'm a a new doctor all over again. Or parents who are not doctors, which were the vast majority, who said, I see life in a different way now. So they really benefit as much as the young people do, uh, which is tremendously gratifying for me because the whole idea for me in my life is do well by doing good. And when people say, well, Richard, okay, this is your business, but what do you do to give back to the community? I say, well, wait a minute, they're the one in the same thing, right? I don't need to do any more to give back to the community. That's what I'm doing in my business every day. Yes, I love it. Now, obviously this is catered very specifically to what's going on. And we, we, we've got, you know, to, to our high achieving students and we've got other people listening right now that they're in sales or they're entrepreneurs or doing VSLs. Maybe they're doing events, who knows? And you said yourself before, like, you know, there's about, and this is about entertainment. This is about capturing their attention so that you can access their intention, so to speak. And I'm wondering, you know, cause it's clear in speaking to you. It's clear just in how you break down what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it, that you understand how to put on a show, if nothing else, to access their attention long enough to give them the tools that they need. So I'm wondering, you know, based on your insights, your expertise, your experience, for people listening to, I mean, they're not doing what you're doing, but they might be creating a VSL right now, or they might be 
trying to figure out another type of event. What are some good tools or tips or, or general advice you might give to capture someone's attention in, in a really healthy way that's going to help you get your message across to them with enough time to get that message to them? Right. Well, I wouldn't be able to fill these stadiums if I wasn't also good at marketing. And it's something that I would describe as a union of um, science and instinct, science and magic. And the reason I say that is because in the beginning, it's all a question of testing. People come to me and say, well, Richard, what do you think about this? Should I test this? Or do you think it won't work? And I always have the same answer, which is I have absolutely no idea. And one test is worth a thousand theories. Mm. So one of the things I tell up and coming marketers, and it's a lesson that everyone should remember, is that in marketing, you fail your way to success. You fail your way to success. When you're thinking about your ideal customer, picture 20 keys on a key ring two of which will open the lock. Maybe you're lucky. And the first key you put in the lock is one of those two. Much more likely, you're going to have to try a whole bunch of keys until you get to one of those two keys. That's marketing. It's a question of, again, don't sit down and give up by the side of the road. You've got to keep trying things until either you hit that combination of words and images and price and offer and everything else. And the person goes, oh, that resonates with me. I want it. I have desire for it because that's what marketing is. It's raising desire. Uh, People don't like to be sold to, but they love to have their desire raised. And to do that requires a lot of testing. And in fact, I was on a a mastermind call with a, a person who is a specialist in Uh, reality TV shows. She produces them. She's a fixer when things go wrong. And she was saying, wow, you guys who are in in direct response marketing are so much more advanced than we are. We have to drop two or $3 million just to to figure out if one concept is going to work or not. You guys can drop a few thousand or a few hundred and do these little micro tests and figure it out. So to me, the message is, um, is, to, is to keep testing until you come up with the thing. Then it switches from instinct to science. Once you've found it, now you want to leverage it. You want to optimize it. You want to dial it in. And that's a lot of systems and processes and science that uh, I'm sure a lot of your audience is aware of just in terms of what software do I use? And mm-hmm. What's the best email service and all the rest. But if you start there, it's interesting. Dean Jackson, uh, the great marketer and life philosopher says, you can't hide a winner. So even if your systems kind of suck, if you've got something that people want, you'll know it. Yeah. You will know it. And at that point, you optimize your system so that you really make the maximum number of sales. Um, I don't know. Is that kind of the 
I'm not sure I answered the question yeah. that you asked. Well, you gave a whole new level of insight. This is what I love about this. And I asked someone and then, you know, the expert guest being you in this case just comes up with something I wasn't even expecting, which I love. And really what I'm getting out of that is the value of iteration and also my own interpretations. Like if you've got a, you know, a kick-ass offer, you could then tweak the color of your headline, but that, that offer is going to carry you through either way and the headline will help or hurt things, but, you know, have good foundational pieces. Um, another part I, I remember in speaking with you, um, we had a brief conversation, I think last week. It's, it's funny how much of a blur this month and this year has been, but I oh, yeah. you mentioning something about the value of a pattern interrupt as well. Well, it, it, certainly in our events, mm-hmm. uh, unpredictability is absolutely key, as it is when you're watching TV. If you're watching a show, if you're watching um, The Prisoner, and you go, oh, this is what's going to happen now. Oh, yeah, you know, listen, you saw that. Here's what's going to happen after that. You know what? You're not going to watch it anymore because mm-hmm. it's boring. Yeah. It has to be interesting and unpredictable to be, um, to be interesting to you. That's the human condition. And that certainly goes for the delivery of live events. I don't think it's that so much true with um, with marketing, but it sure as hell had better be compelling and exciting all the time. I mean, one of the things, and, and it depends on the generation as well. So listen to this. The audience that I'm dealing with, which is Gen Z, um, they're the TikTok generation. And what, and what, content producers are finding as an example works really well is they create shows that are eight minutes long and chopped into 20 second segments. So what the teenagers do is they jump from segment to segment to kind of get to the drama, to get to the end, almost creating their own preview reel. And then if they kind of like it, then they go back and watch the whole thing. Mm. So this is how little time you have to grab the attention of someone. And yet, if they have type 2 diabetes and you have a 20-cent pill that will cure it and they believe you, it doesn't matter how much your ad sucks. Mm -hmm. You are going to be unbelievably successful. Uh, But Conversely, if you're trying to sell that pill to a million people who don't have type 2 diabetes, you will be a complete failure, right? So that ability to... So here's the smartest thing I ever heard anyone say about how to start a successful business and grow it. And it's this. Find a group of people you can communicate with who are passionate, preferably irrationally passionate, about something, figure out what they want, and give it to them. Okay, let's back up and analyze each part of that. Find a group of people you can communicate with. So it doesn't matter if I have a 50-cent pill that cures type 2 diabetes if I have no ability to communicate with people who have type 2 diabetes. So the first thing you have to ask yourself is, whatever audience I'm interested in, is there a way for me to get to them through buying ads, through billboards, through newspaper ads. I don't care. 
But if they're invisible, stop. Just stop. Mm-hmm. Next, are they passionate, irrationally passionate about the thing? So unless you're selling a commodity, um, Kleenex or something of that nature, you want to sell something that people actually have an emotional interest in. That's why what I do sells because parents have a massive emotional interest in their kids. Golfers have a massive emotional interest in their golf clubs. It's absolutely absurd and so on and so forth. So given the choice, if you want a successful business, pick a group that is passionate or irrationally passionate about something. Certainly if I had type two diabetes, I'd be irrationally passionate about a 50 cent pill that could cure me, okay? Figure out what they want and give it to them. Now consider the way that almost, like the vast majority of people who enter business do it. It's exactly the opposite. They have an inspiration for a product or a service that they think is going to have a huge impact on the world and they develop it and they develop it and they develop it till it's just what they feel great about. And then they go back and they try and find the audience Mm -hmm. just to discover no one's interested in it. So don't do that. If you want to program yourself for success, go through the steps just the way I described them Do not, under any circumstances, start with the product or service and then try and find the audience. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. We, we, I've been having so much fun this conversation. I could already tell, like, I'm, I'm going long here. So I want to make sure that we get in on your schedule. Um, That, that is, what, what a perfect way to end my mostly, uh, you know, end of round of questions. I guess I did have two, though. I want to make sure to ask you before we're done here. One, of course, was like in the context of you know, Da Vinci Alliance or anything else, like what do you got currently going on right now that that's like really got your attention at the moment? Well, I'll say, um, I'll say really quickly because I do want to, before we end, I had an epiphany this morning and I want to share it with your audience. I mean, I literally, I literally just woke up with it, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, This is a real renaissance for us because now we realize we can sell Uh, something that's online and we're no longer constrained by just the summer and a stadium that only holds so many people during a certain number of days and only the people who can afford to travel there and get a hotel and buy the food and right so now all of a sudden we're kind of untethered from mother earth and now I'm like well wait a minute Now we can start doing other subjects. We can try and sell into China and India. We can go up to college kids. Um, We can, uh, I've got two or three other things. But basically I've got a lot of things that we're trying to implement at the same time. And to do that, I'm hiring different people who over the years I've learned are really smart to help me uh, because I would say to your audience, you don't know what you don't know and you don't see what you don't see and you don't know what those are. So if you can bring other really smart people in on a consulting basis to, to show you where your blind spots are, it can be worth an enormous amount to you 
both emotionally and financially. And that's what I like to do, but it takes time to find people that are trustworthy. So yeah, there's a lot of expansion potential um, that, um, that we're going to be pursuing now that uh, the acceptance of the digital event has jumped four years in four months. Mm, I love it. I love it. Um, also, you know, if people want to connect with you, what is the best way for them to go about doing that? Well, if you have um, any questions for me, I'd be delighted to hear from you. My personal email is richardrossi at gmail.com. No periods, no dashes, just R-O-S-S-I, richardrossi at uh, gmail.com. And if you want to see what I'm up to, you can go to Future Docs. That's with an S, futuredocs.com. And that's my main project right now is um, inspiring the future of medicine which is an amazing time to be in that profession. Let me tell you that. I'll bet. And I'm going to put the, that link into the description of this, um, you know, and wherever it's appearing, wherever I'm publishing this, so people can just easily click. And um, usually I, I have a, some kind of cool question that will prompt the guest to reveal something really awesome, but you've come pre-prepared with an epiphany. So I guess, Richard, I'm just going to turn the floor over to you to, to whatever you had this morning you want to share with us. Well, that's funny. Well, and to the audience, we were, we did not coordinate this. We I did didn't not. know that <laughs> how you were going to end. Well, I think that one of the most important questions in life, and I wrote this down, it is how to turn the odds more in your favor. Now that may seem like an, just like a simplistic thing, but in any situation, if you ask yourself that question, it will be absolutely fascinating how much creativity is stimulated. Um, Tony Robbins has this technique, which is really cool. He'll go up to someone in the audience who has a really big problem and he'll say, well, what do you think you should do? And they'll go, I have no idea. Absolutely none. I have absolutely no idea what to do. And then he says, um, well, if you had an idea, what would it be? And all of a sudden they say, well, if I had an idea, then it might be this or this or this. And <laughs> he's like, well, I think you have an idea. Or the way I always put it to people who come to me with problems and don't have solutions is I say to them, well, what would you do if you weren't you? And they say, well, if I wasn't me, then I might try this or this or this or this. It's kind of crazy, really. And I found that this question is exactly the same. So if I want, um, if I don't want my dog to bark as much anymore, ask myself, how do I turn the odds more in my favor? And then just make a list. But phrase it that way. If I want to deepen my relationship with my wife, how am I going to turn the odds more in my favor. And the reason that phraseology in my mind is so, I think, important is because there's an element of luck to everything in life. And no successful entrepreneur will, who's being honest, will tell you they didn't have an element of real luck to get where they were. And to deepen your relationship or get your dog to stop barking, let's face it, there's an element of luck. 
in all of that. How's the other person feeling? What's going on with that dog? It goes on and on. You may fail. So the real question is, how do you turn the odds more in your favor? Do you need an asset? Do you need a person? Do you need to read something? Do you need to just make a list of options? Now, I encourage your audience to just ask themselves that in any situation, personal or professional, when they're stuck or you just want to maximize the opportunity, what do I need to do to turn the odds more in my favor? Wow. I definitely plan to share that with other people in other conversations and you better believe I'm giving you credit um, that if, if I wasn't so busy, Richard, I could write a whole book off of that question right there. That, that is amazing. Um, I don't know where to begin. Thanking you for coming on and, and sharing such unbelievable wisdom, insight, and just strategy with us. And, you know, I can tell by the way you operated again through this conversation, through what you do. I mean, you have such a wonderful heart and I really appreciate you making this time and, and sharing with the audience. This, this was an unbelievable conversation, my friend. Thank you. I had a ball and I want to thank you. It's always great to be able to chat about things I'm passionate about. And um, I thank your audience for taking the time to listen. Thank you again, Richard, for such an insightful and amazing conversation. I appreciate it beyond words. Guys, I highly recommend you check out futuredocs.com, which I'll leave the link to in the spot on shatteredamoldpodcast.com, where this episode resides, and in the YouTube description of this video if you're checking this out on video format instead of audio. Also, quick reminder, if you haven't done so already, you want to check out my book, The Last Law of Attraction Book You'll Ever Need to Read, which can be found on Amazon by going to the link lastlawofattractionbook.com, or you can check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Cap. And while you're at it, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button after pulling out your phone. Leave a quick, honest, written review about the podcast while you're at it. Let me know what you thought about my interview with Richard and any prior interviews, and stay tuned because we've got so many more awesome guests on the way. We've got so much more value on the way. So be ready for another episode soon, and I will see you then. Thank you for listening to Shatter the Mold at www.shatterthemoldpodcast.com. My name is Andrew S. Kaplan. My name is Andrew S. Kaplan, and it's time to shatter the mold. <laughs>